0: find your copy of God's Word and look with me in Genesis chapter 38 this morning. Genesis chapter 38. Uh, the holiday season is upon us this week. Officially gets kicked off, though per Walmart it started back in April. Uh, but uh, it's officially kind of getting kicked off this week. Uh, Thanksgiving coming up in a few days. A hallmark of the holiday seasons is family gatherings. Now, that might look different for some of us this year. It might be a different type of gathering this year, but most of us, between now and the end of the year, we will end up interacting with some people from our family, Some of us will end up interacting with our extended family, and the more extended in the family you get, the more fun it gets, right? See, every family has that person. Every family has that relative. I mean, you love them and all. You're glad you tolerate them as members of your family. It just wouldn't be somebody that if you had a month to take a vacation with, that you would take along with you. Now, if you're sitting there and saying, Pastor, I cannot believe that. There's no one in my family that fits that description. You're that person. (laughs) You are that person. Every family, look, every church has that person. We got a few of them here. And... Every family has that person. Jesus had a family. And some people that belong to Jesus' family were quite the interesting people. And what I want us to do as we prepare to move toward Christmas is I want us to focus in and to look at a portion of Jesus' family. Now, we're going to take a very small slice of that family tree, and we're going to look at the women who are mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. It was very unusual in Bible times, in ancient times, for females to be included in a genealogy. It was usually just the names of the males. It was also very unusual to have colorful characters of any gender, male or female. You, know, you Back then what they would do is if, if you had that member of your family, when you would write out your genealogy, you just skip them. <laughs> Man, you would, I mean, Ancestry.com could not find them. You, you would just skip over them. You would put uh, the, the people that you wanted to be associated with your family, those would be listed. But I, I find it interesting that in Jesus' genealogy, according to, to how Matthew traces it, Matthew mentions five such women. Five women in the lineage, in the family tree of Jesus. And these women are, by and large, hidden figures. They are ladies that uh, maybe outside a narrative or two you may have not have heard anything about. I don't know how long you've been coming to church. I've been preaching since uh, October 1993, and this is the first time I've ever preached a sermon on Genesis chapter 38 on the life of Tamar. And when I read the chapter, I'm reminded why well, it's taken that long to preach on Tamar. And we'll dig into that in just a little while. But uh, these women are for the most part, they're very hidden, very behind the scenes. Now we're going to look today, go back to my title slide please, one more back, y'all are trying to get me out of here ahead of time, y'all must be hungry. Uh, We're going to look today at a sermon I've titled, From a Mess to a Masterpiece. From a Mess to a Masterpiece. We're going to look this morning at the life of a woman named Tamar. Her... Life's story is recounted for us in Genesis 38. Kind of an odd placement for that chapter. It's kind of it just jumps out at you because it's in the middle of a of a Joseph narrative. It almost seemed like a parenthetical, but it it shows us something about the family of God and how God can take a mess and make a masterpiece out of it. Because if there was anyone whose life would have been characterized as a mess, it was Tamar. In fact, the next slide that the the slide we just have a minute ago, her family tree, go ahead and flip to that next one. Her family tree looks messy. You see, that the text tells us in Matthew that Abraham had a son whose name was Isaac, and then Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had Judah. And then Judah, he actually had five boys. I left off intentionally number one just because he's not a major player in the story. It gets a little messy, as it is, if is isn't messy enough already. Uh, Judah marries someone called the daughter of Shua. And they have two kids. They have Ur and Onan. Ur marries Tamar. Okay, Er, we'll see in a minute, dies. So then Tamar marries Onan, Ur's brother, and Onan dies. And so then Tamar pretends to be someone that she's not, and she ends up having a relationship with her father-in-law, Judah, but he doesn't know it. And they end up having two children, Perez and Zerah. Their mother is Tamar, their father is Judah, Teres and Zara's mother was married to their half brothers. (laughs) Mari Povich. (laughs) Uh, I think we should start. Jerry, Jerry, I mean Jerry Springer. How bizarre! How odd! And yet, it is from this mess that God causes a masterpiece. I've tried to think of every way to frame this chapter this morning for you, and I know we've got little ones in here, and for that reason, I'm not going to read every verse and we'll summarize in family language uh, portions of this chapter, but I, I want to summarize Tamar's life by making three statements about her life. If this is going to be a problem, just going to cut this off, and I'll go with the, I'll stand behind the pulpit if it's going to. statements about Tamar's life that will help us understand her life better. Number one is this. Tamar was a woman who experienced deep pain. She was a woman who experienced deep pain. Her life was filled with painful experiences. Let me summarize the first uh, few verses of this chapter for you. She is married to a man by the name of her. We don't really know a lot about him, but we know enough. He was so wicked that God struck him dead. Now, Scripture does not tell us what actions his wickedness entailed, but we can imagine it was not easy to live with him. If he was so wicked that God struck him dead... There's no doubt, again, Scripture doesn't tell us the specific actions. It's not a far reach for us, however, to conclude that Tamar was likely abused, likely forgotten, likely misused by Ur. He was wicked to people enough that God took his life. So when he dies, he likely dies when they are young in their marriage because they have no children at this point, and here is Tamar, a young, childless widow who is left at the mercy of her father-in-law Judah and his family. Well, at this point, Judah, the father-in-law, he implements a practice in their culture called the Leverite marriage, and here is how that would take place, is if you had two sons, or more than two, but you had two sons and one son, the oldest son, got married, but he died before there was a child. The other son was to marry his sister-in-law. I, I, again, it's, I'm, I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. <laughs> and uh, it is with that, uh, that brother-in-law who is now going to marry the, his brother's widow. They are to produce a child. The goal is to have a child to carry on the, the lineage, the family name. Now, when that child is born, the brother-in-law gets no reward for that. the inheritance for the deceased brother is passed down to that child. So Ur er dies. It's Onan's time. to. Uh, it is his turn to assume the role of husband. He is to marry Tamar and have a child. Onan doesn't want to do that. And so he doesn't. He marries her. He has relationships with her, but he takes steps to uh, do whatever he can to not seal the deal and have children. That infuriated God that he would step outside the provision that God had allowed. And so God not only did he strike her dead, God stroked Onan dead. And so now Tamar has lost two husbands. She still has no children and she is out of options. Look at what her father in law tells her in Genesis 38 and verse 11. That Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, "Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son grows up." So there's the runt of the left, there's the baby of the family, Shelah, and he's going to uh, wait until he gets old enough to marry. For he feared that he would die, Shelah would die, like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah treats Tamar like damaged goods. He sends her away, destitute, to live as a widow, which means she'll live without any legal, economic, or social status. She has no money, no options, No hope. To make matters worse, Judah has no intention of giving his third son to Tamar as a husband. In fact, verse 11 just told us that uh, he was just saying that, that he was afraid that Tamar was some kind of bad luck. He had two sons that married her. They both died. I've got one son left. I'm not going to give this son in marriage to her because what happens if he dies? In fact, verse 14 of Genesis 38 tells us that uh, Tamar saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. She watched him grow up and she realizes that he's not going to be my husband. I'm going to be utterly alone. And catch this. She can't marry anyone else because well, she is still technically betrothed to Shalab. And so if she does go and marry someone, else, it's adultery. And guess what happens to her? She's stoned. She is going through intense pain. Her life is a mess and a mess of deep pain. That helps us understand her story. That Tamar experienced deep pain. There's a second thing to understand about Tamar. And that's this. She executed a deceiving plan. She had a deep pain. And then she executed a deceiving plan. Look at what happens in chapter 38 and verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, And sat at the entrance to a name which is on the road to Temna. For she saw that Shelal was grown up and she had not been given to him a marriage. Let me clue you in on something. When she takes off her widow's garments, when she covers herself with a veil, that is the dress of a lady of the night. And when she goes to sit at the entrance to a name, that is the entrance to the city, that is where that kind of business was transacted. Now, here's what happens in the PG church version uh, with uh, with, with, with children involved or in attendance. Uh, What happens is that uh, Judah says, Hey, how much would it cost to uh, spend some time with you, not knowing it's his daughter in law? And she named her price of a young goat. That's the price she named. And uh, they agreed on that, but then Tamar said, i tell you what, I need a a deposit so that I I don't want you to, to steal the goat, so give me your signet ring, give me the cord of your garment, and the staff that is in your hand. That's basically his passport, his license, driver's license, and his credit card, okay? Every way that you can identify him. These belong this is this this is what identifies Judah as Judah. So they have that pledge, they have their illicit relationship, and then Judah leaves, and Judah gets the goat, he sends the goat back, he says, Go find this one, get my stuff back. They go to the city, they're like, we don't see. The woman, she's not anywhere. We ask people in town, where is this lady of the night? Where is she? And no one knows. They don't have her. And so Judah says, okay, let's just leave my stuff with her. It's better just to forget this mess. Let's go on, so I'm not embarrassed. That brings us to verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. <coughs> Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burnt. Well, how mighty and holy of him now. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. In other words, she is pulling Amari Povich. You are the father. And she said, please identify who these are. Father-in-law slash dad. The signet. And the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them. He realizes what's happened. And he said, She is more righteous than I. So I did not give her to my son Shalah. And he did not know her again. At first glance, it looks like Tamar is a cunning, morally suspect manipulator. Who will do whatever it takes to get her away? I don't think that's her story. I don't think that's the case. I think Tamar is a victim who feels like she has run all out of options. Her logic is fairly simple. Well, if if Judah won't have Salah do his duty for me to have a son, then the next in line, it would kind of go back to Judah himself. And I know that he's not going to openly and willingly follow through. So I'm going to plan a deceptive way to make this happen. Now, we don't have a statement of what her motivations were in all of this. But at least from Judah's perspective, Judah says... There is a righteousness that is driving her actions. She is more righteous than I. I was supposed to provide a son, and I did not do that. I was not righteous in that. But she is trying to secure this family line. She is more righteous than I. She is executing a deceiving plan. She went a deceptive route to secure a good thing. And in that, she shows, after all, maybe she does belong with this family. Because they do have a bit of deception. They say, Pastor, do the end justifies the means? Was Tamar right in doing this or was she wrong in doing this? You ready? Yep. That's all I got. You t- I've got my, job's, <laughs> my job's not to uh, answer every question you've got. Uh, my job's to, to make you ask questions sometimes. Here's a good lunch discussion for you to have with your family today. What better way to start off Thanksgiving week? Uh, (laughs) Was the prostitute justified? Was Tamar justified and pretending to be a prostitute? Uh, You're welcome and Merry Christmas. (laughs) So she experienced deep pain and she's executed a deceiving plan. Let's just admit at this point it's a mess. It's a mess. But there's something else you need to know about Tamar that takes her mess and turns it into a masterpiece. She encountered a divine purpose. Tamar believed that she needed offspring. And God reached into this mess, and he began to work his plan, a divine purpose. Chapter uh, 38, verse 27 tells us, When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez, which means breakout. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And see, Perez is a name that shows up again. You don't have to turn there, but you can look at it sometime in Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus, and it goes back through Abraham, through this man called Perez, who was a result of this mess that we see in Genesis chapter 38 because God took that mess and he made a masterpiece out of it. He kept a lineage intact from which would come the Savior of the world. This isn't just an ordinary story. This is an extraordinary story of the family that God chose to bless the world and Tamar is a part of that story. She and Perez Become not only a part of the best story in the world, but they become a part of the means in which God creates a family that leads to our Savior being born. You see, God is at work even in messy situations. You see, God is at work in our stories, even our messy ones. God doesn't just use us when we're at our best. And and when things are going well, God uses the hard and difficult episodes of our lives. Nothing is out of his control. You see, in this way, Tamar points us to her purpose. Because ultimately, she points us not to Perez, but guess who she ultimately points us to? Jesus. Jesus. But you see, Tamar had someone else's sins imputed to her. Remember back when we saw that Judah said, I'm not giving my third son because it's Tamar's fault that I've lost my first two. We know that Tamar had absolutely nothing to do with their deaths. Er and Onan died because they were wicked. Just as we deserve to die because we're wicked. And Tamar was blamed even though she was innocent of those lives. Their wickedness was imputed to her. And wouldn't you know it when her descendant Jesus comes? He takes the mess that we've made. He takes our sin that's imputed to him, and he does righteously. We may have to scratch our head and think, okay, what did did, Was Tamar's actions, how good were they? We don't have to wonder that about Jesus. All of his actions for us are good. You see, Tamar's life teaches us that God works in the worst circumstances to accomplish his purposes. This was never more true than when God's own son was killed. There has never been a greater injustice than what was committed on that day. And yet God used that injustice to bring about our salvation. Jesus' death led to our deliverance. God turned the greatest injustice into the greatest triumph. His death became our greatest hope. God works in the worst circumstances to accomplish his purposes. He did it then, and he still does it today. I want to ask you this morning if you have a relationship with this God who can take a mess and make a masterpiece come out of this God who took your sins into himself. If there has never been a time that you placed your faith in this God, may today be that day that Tamar's God becomes your God. Because if he can take the mess of her life and make a masterpiece out of it to accomplish his purpose, how much more so can he do that in our lives today? What's the next step that you need to take in your relationship with Jesus? Whatever that next step is, we invite you to take that. This is our invitation. In just a second, we're going to pause for about a half minute. That's going to be our time of commitment. Whatever step, whatever commitment you need to make to Jesus today, make it during this time. Maybe you're sitting in a mess yourself. Ask God, invite God into your mess so that he can make a masterpiece out of it. Would you right where you are, bow your head right where you are just for 30 seconds and do business with God this morning. Father God, I pray for every person in this room this morning. Lord, we all have the ability to make a mess out of our lives. But your grace is greater than our sin. You have the ability to take the messes we make and to use them to accomplish your purpose. So I pray if there's one here today that needs to make a commitment to you in whatever way, whether it's for their salvation, whether it's to follow your example in baptism, whether it's to become a part of this church or just to dedicate their life in service to you, that they would surrender to you. And knowing that you have the ability to cause our lives to count as we fulfill your purpose. In the good name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we prepare.